1965 book, Paper Lion, the late George Plimpton wrote that the base of it was the urge, if you wanted to play football, to knock someone down. That was what the sport was all about. The will to win closely linked with contact. Greetings to you and all the ships at sea. I'm Ted Green, 15-year tech industry veteran, and you're listening to Bolt Bucket, a waggish gab and sometimes rant on technology in our lives. From mankind's past, the present, and our future. Dad, can you fix my cyborg? In 1888, American football was in its infancy, and almost exclusively the preferred deathmatch of elbow-throwing, bloodletting Ivy League boys during the cold, shortening days of the fall season. Remember, there were no Ivy League women back then. Not a one. And it was in that year, an era with no padded uniforms or helmets, when the College Football Rules Convention voted to finally allow tackling below the waist. How violent was early college football? Well, on November 25, 1905, on this one day alone, no less than three college football players died across the country. By the end of the year, the total body count for 1905 piled up to 18. All for the love of the game. So bone-fracturing players and their paternal coaches soon imagined pads as a pretty good idea. Survival kit for the game, if you will. Skull protection, oddly, was the very last bit of armor to be accepted in American football. Helmets were not a mandatory piece of equipment on the college gridiron until 1939, and were not mandatory in the NFL until 1943. Now, DeLorean time machine yourself back here to 2016, and football is bigger, faster, and in some ways more dangerous than ever before. With that, questions and concerns surrounding the safety of its players have gained prominence. In particular, the health of the stuff between the players' ears, the brains. Recently, Hollywood has brought the ravages of concussion damage to the fore with the well-played, aptly titled film, Concussion. And four weeks ago, folks across the U.S. did a lot of grimacing at their widescreen as a 39-year-old quarterback clearly ailing and invisibly mangled after 18 bone-shearing, muscle-ripping years in the NFL led his team to the unlikeliest of victories against a younger, more whole opponent in Super Bowl 50. Just this past summer, 2,000 NFL players joined together in a lawsuit alleging that the NFL failed to adequately inform players of the neurological risks of the game. The short list looks like this. Dementia, depression, reduced cognitive ability, sleeplessness, early-onset Alzheimer's, all associated with head-on collision after collision. And the technology at the center of this American football firestorm is the football helmet. Let's look at the intriguing history of this skull and brain-saving device. Before the invention of the football helmet, that football game incubators such as Harvard, Princeton, and Rutgers, players would simply grow their hair long to protect their heads. Now we're talking 1875 to 1890-ish. Realizing that faces and noses were still getting mangled, a Mr. Edgar Allan Poe III, that's not his stage name, that's the grandnephew of the famous writer, developed a small leather nose protector. That didn't last long. It severely interfered with vision and especially breathing. Not good for the lightning-fast game of football. Most sources credit the invention of what we refer to today as the football helmet to U.S. Naval Academy midshipman Joseph M. Reeves, who had a protective device for his head made out of leather. This allowed him to play in the 1893 Army-Navy game after he was told by a Navy doctor that he either give up football 
or risk certain death from another kick in the head. Reeves went to a local shoemaker and had a crude, unpadded leather helmet fabricated, but this helmet still wasn't quite the solution. Incidentally, Joseph Reeves' brain did survive his football career, as Reeves later went on to invent naval carrier aviation. Or maybe, in fact, it was brain damage that encouraged him to strap on an underpowered biplane and launch it off the back of a ship in open ocean while the thing was moving. The football helmet slowly began to take on more of what we recognize today as the modern helmet when, around 1915, more padding was stitched on and ear flaps with holes were added for better on-field communication. The next technological innovation was a breakthrough that came around 1917 in the form of inside suspension webbing, which would cradle the skull away from the leather shell. This innovation absorbed and distributed impacts better and added ventilation, much-needed ventilation. These robust leather helmets were known as Zupke helmets and named after Red Grange's University of Illinois team coach Bob Zupke. Rawlings and Spalding were some of the first to manufacture these as a standard design. You can see Zupke helmets in most pre-war college football newsreels. You can go to YouTube and check them out. Or better yet, director Lloyd Bacon's 1940 hit film, Newt Rockne, All-American. The Zupke helmet became a standard through World War II and in fact was co-opted by some American tank crews and motorcycle messengers during the war. But these lids were very heavy smelled like a dead horse after a few hours of use, and the leather itself would eventually rot away from the salt-laden sweat of the players. And there was no chin strap. The quote-unquote strap, if you were crazy enough to use, wrapped around the front of your neck. With football tackling rules still a bit foggy, the era where it's still okay to do what's called clothesline the ball carrier while he's in full sprint, you could see why this helmet was still an optional player accessory. Goodbye, Leather Tuscadero. Enter the Plastic Helmet Era. The Plastic Football Helmet arrived in 1940, about the same year the last helmetless NFL player took the field. The Plastic Helmet was invented and patented by John T. Rydell, a Chicago sporting goods provider. This single-molded shell was lighter, longer-lasting, and didn't rot or smell after usage. In 1940, Rydell also developed the first chin strap that actually rested on the chin instead of the choker design strapped around the player's neck. Rydell's plastic helmet was flat on top at first, but it quickly changed to a teardrop shape in an effort to have a collision glance to one side or the other, and its internal web suspension could be raised or lowered to better fit the player's skull. It's in this, the plastic helmet era, that the last NFL player played, as I mentioned, without a helmet. The year was 1940, and the man... Dick Plasman from the Chicago Bears. You can find vintage newsreels of him running around the field without a lid taken during the 1940 NFL championship game in which the Chicago Bears defeated, that that might be a mild term, but they they, they beat the Washington Redskins pretty handily 73-0. And it's uncomfortable to watch Mr. Plasman run around the field when he's the only one on the field without a helmet. And it's hard to watch, especially in the context of today's game. Now, as always is the case in technology evolution, there were a few problems with this first plastic helmet. These early versions were brittle and often cracked when hit head on. Because of this, these first plastic helmets were eventually banned. And Rydell, a company that would go on to be today's cutting edge helmet designer, was in pretty big trouble. 
Rhino went back to the drawing board, or more correctly, the chemistry lab, for the obvious. A stronger plastic. By the mid-50s, the NFL approved, for good, a new version of Rydell plastic helmets, now with actual padding on the inside versus canvas webbing. Eventually, lighter interior helmet pads evolved by both Rydell and a new sports company called Schutt, S-C-H-U-T-T. Because of this added safety, the new padded helmets became the lid of choice for all players by the mid-1960s. In fact, helmet designer Schutt would go one step further and introduce the air bladder helmet after a study by the University of Michigan reported that air would be a more effective protection from blunt force. Now, noting this, Schutt invented an inflatable bladder inside the football helmet, essentially an always-on inflated airbag. The Michigan Wolverines football team used the prototype, and Schutt Sports started mass production of their Air Series helmets in the early 1970s. Enter free market competition. Now, while Schutt's air helmets were gaining popularity, Rydell received a patent for, quote, energy-absorbing and sizing means for helmets, end quote. The result? The HA series energy-absorbing microfit helmets. These had valves on the crown to allow air to be pumped into the vinyl cushions that were crammed into every space inside the helmet. The player put it on and then had it pumped up to fit firmly around the player's head. In fact, an antifreeze solvent was pumped in by some of the Green Bay Packers to beat the tundra cold of their Lambeau field. These advances in helmet padding and design would dominate football up to the late 80s, with manufacturers Rawlings and Wilson joining the new helmet technology craze. So finally, by the mid-1980s, the football helmet became a complex, highly engineered piece of technology. A typical helmet weighed three pounds, with an outer shell composed of polycarbonate over a layer of aluminum and vinyl with foam on top of plastic and, yes, still present, a micro-thin layer of leather inside. In 2002, Rydell released a more spherical design for the American football helmet called the Revolution. And this is currently the most widely used helmet in America's National Football League. Schutt's competing technology is called the DNA Pro Series. Now, a study released by the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center showed that Rydell's technology and others like it reduced the incidences of concussion by 31%. Subsequently, a 2011 Senate Commerce Committee meeting heard testimony from an associate professor of neurology at the University of Michigan and chair of the American Academy of Neurology Sports Section. And he stated, quote, There is no significant data in the UPMC study for Rydell to make the claim that the helmet reduced concussions by 31%. Rydell has since discontinued use of the 31% claim. More recent... Rydell released now widely used Revolution Speed Series football helmets. We've covered the helmet and how it protects the actual skull, but how does one avoid finishing a football career without teeth and Play-Doh for a nose? A face mask. The first person to design a bar face mask on a football helmet was Vern McMillan, the owner of a sporting goods store in Terre Haute, Indiana. Exact dates are still being argued, but all agree this happened sometime in the early 1930s, and it was a simple rubber-covered wire mask on the then-standard leather helmet. In 1955, G.E. Morgan, a consultant to Rydell, and Paul Brown, then the now-legendary coach of the Cleveland Browns, invented the single-bar design BT-5 face mask. This and variations of the BT-5 were standard, but 
not yet mandatory through the 70s. And yes, consistent with the dawn of the face mask, came a newfound method of grabbing a player by said face protector while they were in full motion and violently twisting their head around as you forced them to the ground. A huge, very dangerous penalty in today's game, now called, oddly, face masking. Referees caught on quick, and this tackle technique was banned in 1956. But imagine for a moment that it was actually legal for a full season. By 1962, face masks were worn by every football player with a sense of self-preservation. Former Detroit Lion Gary Upremian was the last NFL player to play without a face mask, only adopting the crossbar in 1967. Years later, in an interview with ESPN, when asked why he began to use a face mask, Garrow said, I'd wake up every morning with blood in my mouth. I learned my lesson. And as the 80s came around, space-age vinyl-coated steel alloy face masks became the norm in all leagues, and are still used today, in fact. Today in the NFL, all their stars are allowed to design their own face masks specific to their on-field duties, and this has made for some very intimidating front grills over the years. Specifically, Darnell Dockett, Justin Tuck, I'm looking at you, but you can't see me because your face mask that you designed is really, it's a huge, anyway. So now you got all this gear on, you got this modern helmet with a big face mask that no one can see in, no one can see out, you got the crowd roaring, you're in the middle of the field, your coach is over on the sideline, how do you communicate with your coach in the middle of all this chaos? Let's talk about radios and helmets. Despite the relatively recent integration of this technology, helmet radios used to communicate from the field to the coach on the sidelines are by no means a new development in professional football. Cleveland Browns legendary post-war coach, Paul Brown, proved to be the innovator of this technology. The Cleveland Browns patriarch, who has many coaching firsts on his record, experimented with a citizen's band radio in his quarterback's helmet as far back as 1956. But the bulky, fragile 1950s-era radio technology was more often part of the problem than a true solution. So it went away for a few decades. With vastly superior radio technologies emerging and a new generation of coaches and players clamoring for a high-tech game, a new rule in 1995 made helmet radio integration official, allowing a quarterback to have a radio transmitter in their helmet, making it possible to communicate with the coach without the need for elaborate sideline semaphore. This use of radio receivers is regulated by the NFL, but it's up to the teams to decide which kind of system they want to use. But it's still radio technology and all that comes along with wireless audio transmission, good and bad. For example, the San Francisco 49ers had a technologically plagued 2012 season when their helmet radio system would cut off in the middle of a play and even pick up pilot chatter from passing aircraft. The future of the helmet in American football. Along with drone cameras, helmet cams are being tested. Helmet maker Schutt has a device called Schutt Vision. <laughs> you sure you want to call it that? Which is essentially a live GoPro-type camera mounted in, not on, but inside a player's helmet to allow for first-person broadcasting. Now, the Pittsburgh Steelers began to experiment with helmet cams beginning in 2014, but during practices only, helmet cams have not been used in any regular season NFL games yet. Helmet cams are currently in use by the U.S. Arena Football League. And maybe the most astonishing helmet technology in development is, wait for it, 
No helmet at all. That's right. Now stay with me here while I explain. The NFL has noticed that head injuries among rugby and Australian rules footballers are much lower than the NFL by far. This in a game that is faster and nearly as violent. Now why is this? This being 2016, where humans have a greater sense of self-preservation, unlike the early medieval days of football, and modern games now have significant rules addressing player safety, a helmetless player is less likely to careen headfirst into someone or something, knowing they have no protection and will likely hurt themselves. Yes, it seems we're on our way to the 2025 Harvard-Yale game looking strikingly similar to their first match back in 1875. And by the way, Harvard won that first match handily in a complete blanking of all blue and white, six scores to naught. That is the bucket of bolts on the technology behind the American football helmet. For the infinitely curious on this fascinating chapeau, I would suggest the following. For a good bit of film fun on the subject, one can see the early leather helmets that I've described, spot on, accurately recreated, as George Clooney plays fictional early 1930s college football star Dodge Connolly in the uproarious 2008 period football film, and appropriately titled Leatherheads. The story revolves around interwar year American entrepreneurs giving birth to what we now call the National Football League. The film's football uniforms and period gear are brought to life by the fantastic work of Hollywood costume designer Louise Frogley, the same wardrobe visionaire behind films such as 2013's Iron Man, 2008's Quantum of Solace, and Louise's latest period masterwork, Free State of Jones. For a gripping early spring curl-up-on-the-couch treaties on the violent beginnings of American football, I recommend without hesitation John J. Miller's The Big Scrum, How Teddy Roosevelt Saved Football. Now, Miller weaves together a patchwork of turn-to-the-20th-century-era American college football VIPs and historical games and wraps it all in its violence, death, and rah-rah Ivy League rite of passage for America's elite. The Big Scrum's theme centers on President Teddy Roosevelt's 1905 emergency summons to the White House of football coaches from Harvard, Yale, and Princeton in a last-ditch effort to stem the tide of on-field game deaths, 18 in that year alone. If you think today's version of American football is hard to watch, read The Big Scrum. If you have any comments, questions, or have a story idea you would like to contribute to the Bolt Bucket podcast, you can write to me here, ted at boltbucket.net. For more on this presenter, you can go to www.boltbucket.net. We'll chat again soon. Good night.